Amen. Remain standing for our New Testament reading, our gospel reading. Good to see everybody today. Last Sunday of 2021. I like that last song, that fits with Psalm 98, you know, coming at the coming again, which we'll be focusing on today. All right, John chapter 4 in your Bibles, if you want to follow along. We pick up at verse 7 with, of course, a very familiar passage uh, that you're all uh, probably familiar with if you're a believer. Um, the woman at the well, John chapter 4. Let's read it again together and relish this great moment uh, as Jesus uh, was seeking this woman and he found her, just like he did you and, and me if you're, if you're saved. John chapter 4, verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. Don't you love that? Oh, those of us who know the end of the story, don't, don't, you, don't you love that? The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She figured she could change the subject here from uh, uh, her living arrangements to the subject of worship. Surely this man will want to talk about that. And he did. <laughs> Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we, what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, and that's what we want to be, right? The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And that's our goal every Sunday morning. The woman said to him, 
I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And I love this. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Am he. What an account. Praise the Lord. And our sermon text, once again, Psalm 98. We're going to finish it up today. But let's read the whole thing again. Thank you for standing for these long readings today, kind of long readings, but uh, you're, the, you're the Sunday after Christmas group, so you can do it. You're the true Christians that are here today, Psalm 98. Uh, all kidding aside, we, want to, we do want to pray for those, as Ryan already has, those that are struggling with sickness, uh, the reason they're not here, those that are traveling from visiting family, uh, the reason they're not, not here, well, we know that our church members all have valid reasons for not being here today. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is God's word. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this last Sunday of of this year. And we thank you for guiding us and providing for us through another year. We pray for those, we do pray for those who are dealing with illness Pray that your grace would abound to them in, in healing power and in recovery. We pray for those who are traveling, who are away from us, who are in other parts of the country, of the state. Pray that you will bring them home to us safely. We look to regathering together again in the new year. And we thank you for the year that lies ahead of us. And thank you that you are Lord of it. We trust you totally as we end this year and move into a new one. We want to keep our eyes fixed on you and run the race that you've called us to run. Grant us grace for that. Grant us us strength for that. Grant us perseverance. May we run the race with joy. Father, now we ask you to speak to us from your precious word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart together here today in this corporate setting be pleasing to you. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All righty. Well, uh, before, quick, well, quick review. Before I give a review, though, I was speaking to, uh, uh, oh, gosh, I see what you mean. Who was that? It was Todd talking about this. We're really unbowed. I hope the building doesn't tilt over here, start tilting. Uh, if we start tilting, some of you might want to move over to this side. Uh, but anyway, I was speaking to our sister Kelly a while ago, 
And uh, I, I believe I can share this with the, and I was asking how she was feeling because as most of you know, she had uh, had a change in her treatment and it was kind of rough for her in the beginning. But she made the comment, her, her answer to my question was she was feeling good and she's feeling human again, feeling human again. And on this Sunday after Christmas, aren't you thankful that the one who created you, the one who has been around for all eternity, the one who is self-existent, the Lord of the universe, for 33 years, felt human. Wow, that's deep. You ponder that. I mean, I'm chills, kind of goosebumps right here, right? The one who created you had a season of time when he walked the earth, when he felt human. Because he was human. Fully. Yet, you know the rest of the line, without sin. That's the one human feeling he never felt. That we feel. The feelings of remorse. The feelings of repentance. Saying, I'm sorry. Never had those feelings. But he was fully human. And he felt human. And he felt human when he was nailed to a cross to pay for your sin and for my sin. Praise the Lord that he felt human. And Kelly, we're glad, we're thankful you're feeling human. We love you. Thank you. Psalm 98, as we said last week, is the basis for the hymn, Joy to the World, that we sing often at Christmas. And I've issued the challenge to our music director, music minister, to sing it in the middle of summer this year because. Watts said it wasn't necessarily designed to be a Christmas song. It just kind of became that. Uh, it's a song uh, based on Psalm 98. Uh, quick overview, as we said last week, three stanzas, three verses each. Stanza one directed to Israel, presenting God as Savior. We see this word salvation in each of the first three verses. So the emphasis on, is on salvation, on God being a Savior to His people. God's people in the first stanza are called to Praise God for his deliverance of them from bondage and for the victory that he's given them over sin, death, and Satan. Stanza number two, again, three verses, verses four to six. The call to worship expands as those three verses are directed to all the earth. So that necessarily includes Gentile believers. It goes beyond Israel now. It goes beyond the Jewish nation to all the earth. And in this stanza, God is presented as king in verse 6, and we're exhorted to praise him with exuberance. That was a main uh, thrust or a main focus of last week's message, this, this rejoicing and singing and worshiping with exuberance. And then today, stanza 3, verses 7 and 9 will be our main focus, directed to nature or the cosmos. In verses 7 and 8, presents God as judge. In verse 9, a returning judge. A judge that's coming again to set everything right. The entire, in this stanza, the entire universe is called to praise God for his righteousness. And as I said, this is our focus today. Now, we began studying this psalm last week under four headings or or questions. Namely, what do Christians sing? Covered that last week. How do Christians sing? Dealt with that last week. Today, we'll answer the last two questions. Why do Christians sing and when 
do Christians sing? So we covered the first two last week. Quick review. What do Christians sing? Well, verse 1 tells us a new song, a new song. And we made the, the point or the emphasis that we're not talking about a specific song. We're not talking about specific lyrics or specific melody. We're talking about a general melody, a general newness, a general newness of song that undergirds and permeates our life because we have been delivered, because our God is our Savior. We have been saved. We worship a God who saves. We have been saved from sin, saved from death, saved from hell, and saved from the much, much deserved wrath of God. So this new song could be a song of joyous victory. It could be a song of adoration, a song of freedom from bondage, a song of hope, even in the midst of chaos and turmoil and challenge and heartbreak. Because the king has come. Because the wonderful counselor has come. Because the prince of peace has come, the one who's the government of the world is on his shoulders, the one who, for whom the government of our individual lives are being carried on his shoulders. Because Emmanuel is here with us, we have hope always, always, no matter what. Never failing hope, undiminishing hope, a living hope, a hope that does not disappoint because our sins have been washed away and we've been forgiven. So because of our Savior coming to save us, all the the selfish songs are gone. All the hateful songs are gone. All the me first songs are gone. All the depressing songs are, are gone. The negative songs are gone because we have a new song uh, that's laced and permeated with, with hope because of this Savior. How, then we talked about how do they sing? How do we sing as Christians? We're to sing with joyful voices accompanied by musical instruments. Every Sunday, every Sunday, I praise God for the, our, our, our musical leaders, our leaders in music. We, we noted that the phrase break forth indicates exuberance. It speaks of intensity. It speaks of energy. It not, it's not a sleepy thing. It's not a drowsy word. It's not a you know, nonchalant word. It's not a half dead or half asleep or fully asleep. As you know, When I don't preach, I'm in the back. I, mean, I, well, I see a lot of... Well, not a lot, but a handful of sleepers, you know, fully asleep, not half asleep, fully asleep. So just want to let you know that I know you're out there. You know, I know you're out there and uh, Santa Claus is watching. He sees you when you're sleeping. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake and he wants you to be awake. Okay. Okay. So this, these songs are exuberant songs, lively songs, intensity, energy. We, we, we pulled out the dictionary of biblical language last week. The word means to break forth, to burst forth, to, uh, to, with a focus on great zeal and extensive energy, a figurative extension of a mass bursting forth because of too much pressure. And I pointed out, think of a, a balloon that you blow up until it pops. That air's just got to escape. It's got to get out of there. There's no more room for it in there, inside the the interior of that plastic thing, and it's got it just busts forth. That's the picture, okay? This new song is bursting forth from our reborn hearts. It cannot be contained. It wells up in our soul, and it seeks to burst forth from our, from our voice box, from our mouths, and there's no holding it back. All right, let's answer these last two questions. 
Why do Christians sing? Let's continue our corporate pondering of Psalm 98. Why do we sing? We sing because of God's redemptive work. We sing because, as the psalm says, he has done marvelous things. He has accomplished salvation. He has revealed his righteousness, both in his word and in the word made flesh, in his son, Jesus. You know, um, Hebrews 1, begin, that great book of Hebrews begins in chapter 1 with uh, the kind of an introduction said, in the past, God spoke to us through prophets and other ways. But in these last days, and when did the last days begin? At the incarnation, at Christmas. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. He has revealed himself to us through his son in the person of Jesus. So this is a reason for our singing. God has revealed himself to us. He has revealed his faithfulness. He has revealed his steadfast love for us. And we see that he saves Jews and Gentiles alike because in stanza two, the call went out to all the earth. And that extends beyond the Jewish nation. Listen to David's words in Psalm 40. We studied this psalm uh, a couple of summers ago, I think, uh, when we did our a summer psalm series, or I don't know if it was summer psalm series, or these are a few of my favorite psalm series, but either, whatever it was, Psalm 40, verses 1 to 3, we see a picture of salvation and the result. And the result. Listen, David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined, he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. There's the picture of salvation. He drew me up. He drew me up. I didn't climb my way up. I didn't claw my way up. I didn't, you know, stagger my way up. You know, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. There's the picture of salvation. And look at the response. Look at the result. He put a new song. There's that new song. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So what's the first response that David mentions to being saved from being lifted up out of the miry bog? Singing the new song. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, Prince of Preachers, when your heart is full of Christ, you will want to sing. You will want to sing. The Bible gives us plenty of reasons to sing as we continue with this, why do we sing? The Bible gives us plenty of reasons. I want to, New Year, I want to give you a New Year's a challenge. I think I've issued this challenge before. I reissue it today on the last Sunday of 2021. A great word study. And that's where you get a concordance, you pick a word, and you see where, everywhere it's mentioned in the Bible. A great word study is the word sing. Just do a word study of the word sing and see what the Bible says about singing. Okay? The first time that you'll find the word sing, I'll go ahead and kind of get you started on the study. The first time you'll find the word sing in the Bible is in Exodus 15.1. Can you guess what has just happened? You probably can. If you know your Bible, you, you probably can. They've just crossed the Red Sea. The waters have been pushed back. Israel, God's people, 
the subject of the first three verses of Psalm 98, have been delivered. They walked across on dry land to safety. The enemy pursues them. Water comes back. Destruction. Destruction of the enemy. And what do they do? Exodus 15.1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song. So they break out with singing. They can't hold it back. They just walked across an ocean on dry at the bottom of the ocean. They walked across on dry land and they turned around and watched their enemies being drowned. And their first act, act is to sing. They sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So what promoted the first singing from God's people? Salvation. That's what Psalm 98 is all about, especially the first stanza. That's what it's all about. It promoted singing. And the Psalms, look, you don't have to do a word study of the whole Bible. Just do a word study on singing from Psalms, just from Psalms, okay, if you don't want to do the whole Bible. Just just do that. The Psalms give us many reasons. Here's, here's some examples. Psalm, Psalm 511, we sing because we found refuge in the Lord. Psalm 13:6, we sing because God has been good to us. Psalm 34 and 5, we, we sing because his favor lasts a lifetime. So how long do we sing? Yeah, a lifetime. A lifetime. As long as we have breath. Psalm 30, verses 11 and 12, we sing because he's given us joy. Psalm 51, 14, we sing because he has forgiven us. You know, Psalm 51, that should ring a bell. That's David's psalm of confession to God after his sin with Bathsheba. And he receives this forgiveness. In the end of the psalm, he's singing. He's singing. He begins with confession. He ends with singing. That's the way it works. (laughs) Forgiveness brings forth a singing heart, knowing you've been forgiven. Psalm 57, 9 and 10, we sing because of his great love and faithfulness. Psalm 63, 7, we sing because God is our help. Psalm 66, 2, we sing just to glorify God. We sing the glory of his name. Psalm 90, 14, we sing because God's love satisfies us. That could point to the fact, let's just con- let's do the converse of that. A non-singing, professing Christian is indicating that I'm not really satisfied. I'm not really satisfied. Because Psalm 9014 says we sing because we've been satisfied by the love of God. That's all we really need. Knowing our Creator, our Redeemer, loves us. Psalm 95, 1 to 3, because we sing because the Lord's a great God. Psalm 147, 7, we sing because we are thankful. Could that mean that not, non-singers are not thankful? Well, maybe. Maybe. I don't know, but you do the word study, okay? You see what the Bible says about singing. And I, I got a question. I got a question. Just these sample of verses I've given you. I got a, a question. Serious question. I'm serious. What do non-singers do, non-singers who profess to be saved, what do they do with these verses? 
What do they do? What do they do with these verses? Let's talk across them and say it's a serious question. Really, what what do they do with these verses? Claim some sort of exemption? Really? And they might say, oh, "Hey, Butch, come on! These aren't commands. These aren't commands." Well, maybe not. But they results. Their results. Their responses. They represent the proper response to God's salvation and to God's goodness and to God's favor and to the joy of Jesus that he's given us and forgiveness and love and faithfulness and help and and greatness and grace. All these things that we just mentioned are reasons for singing. You might get by with saying they're not commands. But they are Proper responses. Ponder this one from Proverbs. Proverbs 29, verse 6. An evil man is ensnared in his transgression. But, now what do you think the contrasting statement is going to say? An evil man is ensnared in his transgressions. But, conjunction of contrast, a righteous man sings and rejoices. Wow. Ponder that one. That's a good one. So, as we head into 2022, may we all make the declaration of the psalmist in Psalm 104, verse 33. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. In other words, as long as I exist, as long as I can speak, as long as I can force air out of my lungs through my larynx and voice voice box and however all that works, as long as I can do that, I, I will, I will, I will, an act of my will, I will sing to the Lord. And you know he's singing over you. Zephaniah chapter 3. Check that out today. Zephaniah chapter 3. So finally, number four, when do Christians sing? When do Christians sing? In a simple word, now. (laughs) Now. Well, not right now, not while I'm preaching, okay? But in this life, in this life, in this present life, evil age that is dying for the songs of Zion, that is dying for the songs of hope and the songs of love and the songs of joy and the God-glorifying, God-honoring songs that point us to the Redeemer and the Savior. We sing now. Why? Because the Lord is come. The Lord is come. We made this point last week. The Lord is come. Note note the is. Not has come. He is come. He is with us. He is with us. He walked the earth. As Justin preached, a body was prepared for him. He walked the earth for 33 years. Felt like a human. Was a human. Was physically with people. But when he ascended, 
Remember, he said, it's better that I go back because when I go back, one of his last instructions to his disciples, guys, you're not going to believe this and you're probably not going to understand this right now, but it's better that I go back because when I go back, I will send another, another, the great word means one just like, exactly like me. I will send another, speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in. In the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is ever with us. He's with us. The Lord is come. He's with us now. He will never leave us or forsake us, and that causes us to sing. But we also sing because he's coming again. He's coming in the flesh again. He's coming back, and he will judge the earth in righteousness, and that's the focus of the third stanza. Let the sea roar, and all that fills it, the world, and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for or because he comes to judge the earth. The great judge is coming back. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This stanza calls on the entire creation to praise God. Remember, first stanza was the call to worship to Israel, the Jewish nation. The second stanza was the call to worship that added the Gentiles, all the earth. The last stanza calls on nature or what we might call the cosmos, the cosmos, all of nature, all of the universe, to praise their great creator. Why? Verse 9, for he comes to judge the earth, earth, because of that future day when the ills of this suffering world will be set right at the return of Jesus. God's enemies will be judged in righteousness, and we will be glorified. When we see him, we will be as he is. There will be no more curse, nor crying, nor pain. God will wipe away every tear. Evil will be completely and totally eradicated, and all things will be made new. Boy, I pray you'll be there. I pray you'll be a part of that second group. Alistair Begg said this, quote, The New Testament pulsates with this great gospel assurance, which is as vital an aspect of the message of Christmas as is the cradle of Bethlehem. If Jesus Christ is not coming back again, then much of the New Testament is lying to us. The angels were wrong, and Jesus is nothing more than a false teacher. See, stop right there in the quote. We'll come back to Alistair. That's the crux of it, gang. The choice isn't between Jesus as God or Jesus a good moral person. No. The choice is Jesus is God or he's one of the worst people that's ever existed. Jesus is, is, is the creator or he's a liar, a false teacher, the greatest hoaxer ever. That's the choice. That's the choice. Pastor Beck continues, but the glorious truth 
is that just as surely as he came humbly that first advent, he will return in awesome power and glory at his second. The Apostle Paul speaks of this glorious day, this event in history in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 23. And what he does in this text that we're going to read in just a second, he's giving us, this is interesting, he's giving us creation's viewpoint of this event. Okay? Listen to this and ponder with me. Now, let's ponder together. Okay? Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay, there's what we're talking about, this return of Jesus, this day in the future that's coming that will mark the end of this present evil age that we're in, these last days. And Paul says, the sufferings that I'm going through now, the sufferings that believers go through, the sufferings of this world, boy, they're nothing. They're nothing compared to the glory that's coming. For the creation, the creation, like when we said this text is from creation's viewpoint. This is so interesting, and this is so good. Now dive into it with me. Don't hold back, okay? Just dive into it with me. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Think about that now. Creation, this planet that you're living on, that you're walking on, this, the, the, the beautiful mountains that you go and see, the, the seasides and the beaches and the oceans that you stare out on and just are amazed and in awe, the Grand Canyon that you look at, the stars that you see up in the sky. Guess what? They're all waiting and longing for the day when you become like Jesus. <laughs> That's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. And don't you love the Bible? The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. See, the creation didn't want to be cursed when in the garden. They didn't want that. But that was one of the results of the fall of the first Adam. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. They didn't want thorns and thistles and decay and weeds in the lawn and dying pine trees every year that you got to pay big bucks to get cut down. The creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage. Listen, if you're a Christian today, I don't know why I said today, because if you're a Christian today, you'll be one tomorrow. But anyway, if you're a Christian, you're already one up on creation because you've been set free from your bondage. Creation hadn't yet. Wow. Wow. But it will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know, listen to this, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Beloved, creation longs for the return of Jesus. Creation groans for this great day that's coming. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What a day. What a day that's going to be. Don't let creation outgrown you for it. Okay? Don't let creation outlong you for it. You know, Paul tell, tells, tells us that there's a crown waiting for those who have longed for his appearing. You're going to get a reward just for longing for the return of Jesus. So don't let creation outdo you. So, just as we await that glorious day, when we will see Jesus and be as he is, nature is, in a sense, waiting and groaning for its fulfillment as well. You continue to ponder that this week. Now, some may recall, some of you older folks, you young people, you won't remember this, but maybe you, I don't know, I don't know if you get old DVDs and watch it, but some may recall the television miniseries in 1980 entitled Cosmos. Uh, in that the astronomer and atheist Carl Sagan was the presenter and the narrator, and each show contained the image of Sagan standing before a large screen on which there was a display of the beautiful night sky in all its starry splendor. Fingerwork of God. Fingerwork, as John Piper would say. Fingerwork. Think just with his fingers. He created stars hundreds of times bigger than the planet we walk on. Finger work. But they, he would be standing in front of this big screen depicting the starry sky. And he would be saying in a very dramatic and mystical tone, the cosmos is all that is or that ever was, or that ever will be. I never remember that. Remember that? Anybody remember? Okay, good. Yeah. Sagan, Carl Sagan is the epitome of unbelieving man who has exchanged the glory of God for a lie and who worships the creation rather than the creator. He's your epitome Romans 1 man. It's as if Sagan is standing on the tips of his toes, straining to see into the distant heavens as far as his man-made telescopes will allow and declaring with blind and depraved arrogance, the world is all there is. And professing to be wise. He's a fool. He's a fool. But in the passage we just read, Paul gives a very different picture, doesn't he? 
he pictures something else staring off into the distance. And it's not man. <laughs> it's not man staring off toward the outer reaches of space. It's the cosmos itself doing the staring. <laughs> And the groaning and the longing, waiting with eager longing. And what creation is looking for and longing for and groaning for is the revealing of the sons of God. You and me. And all the believers that have ever existed. When creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption in a new earth, a new heavens. And when will that happen? When the Lord Jesus returns to judge the world with righteousness. And because of that, heaven and nature sings. Remember, Psalm 98 inspired joy to the world. Heaven and nature sing. Are you going to let heaven and nature out sing you really? You're the one that's been saved from your sin. Heaven and nature didn't need that. Heaven and nature is in corruption because of your sin, because of my sin. Don't let heaven and nature out sing you. The seas roar and the rivers clap their hands, and the hills sing for joy. You're going to let hills sing for joy, and you're not? Really? The whole universe praises God in great anticipation of his son's return. Listen, this great God was a baby born in Bethlehem. A baby born of a virgin. And according to Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52, that baby lived in submission to Mary and Joseph, his earthly parents. He honored, in obedience to the fifth commandment, he honored his earthly father and mother. And verse 52 of Luke 2 tells us that he increased in wisdom. He increased in wisdom. Well, how'd that happen? He's fully God, but he's also fully man, Remember? I don't think the baby in the major knew anything about Einstein's theory of relativity. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He lived a sinless life. He grew to be a man who would be nailed to a cross and spill his blood for the sins of individuals from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. And that God-man, Jesus Christ, the virgin-born Son of God, will come again. You mark it down. You mark it down. He will come again. The cosmos is groaning for that day. Not as a baby this time, but as a conquering king and a righteous judge. Isaac Watts was thinking of that day when he wrote the end, when he wrote of the end of God's curse on nature that resulted from Adam's sin. In the third verse of joy to the world, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. No more weeds. Man, isn't that going to be good? That's going to be so good. 
No more clearing out your garden of weeds. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. How far is the curse found? Worldwide. It's everywhere. It's in every nook and cranny of every valley and mountaintop and every closet in every home. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. But he comes to make his blessings flow as far as that curse is found. No cursed area is untouched by the return of Jesus. Man, hallelujah. Finally, not only are we seeing now in this present age, but I also strongly believe we will be doing some singing in the age to come when we join with the heavenly chorus. A couple of texts in Revelation point to this, Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song. There it is. Still in heaven. The new song still going to be, it's never going to go away. You might as well start singing it now. It ain't going to go away. I mean, a lot of singing in heaven. And this life right here is a preparation for that. So get some singing practice in. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then Revelation 14, verse 3, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, those are not Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing. Oh, guess what? Guess what they were singing? A new song. A new song. I've always, I've always gotten a kick out of these, these churches that, you know, psalms only churches. Sing psalms only. They don't do that in heaven. <laughs> New song. It's not psalms only in heaven. Why psalms only here? Okay. Another message for another day. Okay. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000, which I just believe is a big number depicting and symbolizing all of redeemed mankind. Okay. I think we touched on that when we did our eschatology study, study several years ago. We won't dive into it now. But anyway, no one could learn that song except the redeemed, except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So let's wrap it up. If we look only at the world, it would be easy to be pessimists. But even though we do not shut our eyes to what's going on around us, even though we do not, do not you know, turn away or, or cover our face from the suffering of the world as we grapple with trials and tribulations as best we can, we do not look only to the world. We look backward in time to Jesus, who came on the first Christmas day to be our Savior, and we look forward to his return in righteousness to set everything right and to bring about our full and final deliverance our full and final glorification. 
what Paul called the freedom of the glory of the children of God and our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I'll close with an excerpt from this month's table talk. This month's table talk was really, really good. You know, it had the uh, theology of, of several Christ, of Christmas hymns. And the very last one, uh, the very last article on the, on the hymns was written by Dr. Alan Strange. And he was writing about the Christmas hymn that I'm not real familiar with. Uh, maybe we need to look it up and check it out next year. Once in Royal David City. And specifically, he was commenting on the line that we've been talking about, the subject we've been talking about today, our eyes at last shall see him. And he gives us this encouraging insight. And I want to leave you with this as we close out 2021. He says this, it is important to have this hope for an eager anticipation of seeing our Lord Jesus in his glory. This helps us live in the here and now with all its griefs, disappointments, struggles, and even bitterness. When we know, contrary to the world, that we are not constantly pressed to seize the day or go for the gusto, having to find all our joy in the here and now, we can actually enjoy this life better. When we realize that we are in a state of humiliation, we we live in a sin-cursed body, we live in a sin-cursed world, this is what Strange calls a state of humiliation, we should be humble about that, and will be until the return of Christ, it lowers our expectations and enables us to enjoy the many moderate pleasures of this life since they need not be invested with the joy that pertains only to the coming age. Do you hear what he's saying? Osteen is wrong. (laughs) You're not going to have your best life now. God's saving that for later. That comes later. And when you understand that, you will enjoy this life better. Oh, I pray we can learn that lesson. It's kind of like the little pithy statement I found maybe last year or something I was sharing with you. I can't remember who said it, but it said, Blessed is the man who expects nothing because he will enjoy everything. That's what Dr. Strange here is saying. That sounds funny. That's a superhero or something, isn't it? But his name is Strange. That's his name. Okay, Alan Strange. Okay. Um, That's what he's saying here in in more words. Our best life is coming later. Don't try to get it now. You're not going to get it now. It's coming later. And understanding that helps us to enjoy this life even more. So, Jesus... He didn't hide this from us. He gave us straightforward instructions that that underscore what I'm feebly trying to say right here to close this sermon out. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, and this is right before he's about to leave, 
right before the cross. He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will. Beloved, you will have tribulation. But he didn't stop there. He laid forth the truth to us as he always does. But he didn't end it there. He said, but take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And beloved, dear church family, he will prove that once and for all when he returns as the perfectly righteous judge of the universe and when he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And until then, what do we do? We sing. We sing. We sing, church. We sing in corporate settings together. We, we sing with our lives, joy and hope and, and encouragement. We sing the new song that Jesus died to purchase for us. We sing the songs of Zion. We sing the song of salvation. We sing songs of praise and thanksgiving. We sing the songs of joy. We sing and make melody in our heart to the Lord. For he is Emmanuel, God with us, and he is coming back. He's coming back to earth to take us home. Oh, dear, dear church family, it's a joy to end another year with you. My heart overflows with the melody of gratitude. Let's press on into 2022 for God's glory and each other's good. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the song, the new song, the new song of salvation. Thank you. Help us sing it better. Help us sing it more intensely. Help us sing it more joyfully. Wake us up from our slumber and make us singers. Please, God, please, for your glory. Thank you for this year. Thank you for the coming year. And thank you that you are with us. And you're coming back. Don't let creation outgrown us or outsing us. Our eyes are fixed on you. And by your grace and with the strength of your Holy Spirit, we are pressing on. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.